I invite you tonight to look at Exodus chapter 25 with me, Exodus chapter 25. And our passage tonight is in verse 10 through verse 22. I mentioned last week that this beginning here in chapter 25, really all the way to the end of the book, the focus is on the tabernacle of the Lord. 13 out of the last 16 chapters of Exodus are about the tabernacle. That in itself shows us the central place of importance that this place of worship had in the life of Israel as God's people. Clearly this was important, right? 13 out of 16 chapters in the last half of the book of Exodus. And from here, chapter 25 through the end of chapter 31... We have the instructions from God to Moses of all the materials and the design and how to carry out the building of the tabernacle, as well as the making of the furnishings and the priestly garments that would be used in the service of the tabernacle. Then we have in chapter 35 to the end of the book of Exodus, Essentially the same exact material, almost word for word, but being carried out. So here is God telling Moses how it should be done. And then chapter 35 to 40 is Moses and his workers and helpers doing the work and getting it done in accordance with the instructions, which is why it's essentially word for word, because they're carrying out exactly what God had told Moses to do. And in the middle of those two sections, so the instructions and then the carrying out of the building of the tabernacle, you have probably one of the lowest points in the history of Israel as a people when they gathered around a calf made out of gold and bowed down before it and said, here's your gods, Israel, that delivered you from Egypt. It was the depth of idolatry and of paganism and of going directly against the covenant that they had just agreed to before Moses went up the mountain. And so in the middle of this large section on how to rightly worship God, we have this image of Israel not worshiping God rightly at all. No wonder that God is so angry with them in that episode in Israel's history. But we're in the section right now in chapter 25 to 31 in which God is explaining to Moses exactly how he wants his tabernacle to be constructed. And the, and the portion that we're looking at this evening is on specifically on the design of the Ark of the Covenant. This special piece of furniture, the special vessel that would go into the most holy place inside the tabernacle. That's our focus tonight, beginning in verse number 10 of Exodus 25. So the Lord says to Moses, Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, And make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet. 
with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have recorded this, um, these instructions to your people. And even though these detailed instructions about the building of a place of worship for you in ancient Israel seem so far removed from us so long ago, so completely different from our current setting, our current culture, and the way that we worship you now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, by carefully thinking about your word and by your spirit teaching us, that we would be able to bridge that gap between these words of long ago and our life today as your people and how we might learn from these words how uh, we can worship you, learn more of who you are and what is important to you, and what is of central importance for us as your people as we worship you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we study this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we should notice right from the very beginning is the order in which Moses has arranged the material. Or we might even say the order in which God gave to Moses the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And it's interesting because you might think that the very first thing that God would teach Moses about is the structure itself, the tabernacle. I mean, that seems to make logical sense to us, right? I mean, you don't, you don't really go out and pick out paint and couches and furnishings if you don't have a house, right? Usually we would think you need the structure first, and then you put things in it once you have the structure, but that's not, and, and what's also interesting is that that's what happens when these things are actually built, beginning in chapter 35. So when these things are actually built, they start with the building of the structure of the tabernacle. But that's not how the instructions start. The instructions begin with the ark. Why is that? Because the ark and what it represented and what was with it is the most important part of the tabernacle. So think of it this way. The ark was not made for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made for the ark. 
So the ark is this central furnishing, this central object of which God will come and dwell above it and between the cherubim with his presence. And around that, you will build the tabernacle. So this is, this is what is of central importance. And that's why it begins here with the ark. And before we get into more into the theological significance of the ark and what it represents, let's just look at some of the, the details, the particulars of its construction. So first of all, God told Moses that you are to make this ark or like a chest, make it out of acacia wood. And the significance of acacia wood, I don't think there's necessarily any particular symbolic significance about the acacia wood. I think the reason why this was chosen is because of its strength, that it was a particularly hard wood. It was rare. It was expensive. And so therefore it was giving something precious to God. But I think one of the main reasons it was chosen is because of its endurance and that it was it was hard to find. It, it came from very small trees. And so you would need a lot of trees to get enough wood to make something out of it. So it was rare. It was precious. But it was also very hard. And I think it, it would serve as a good long-term base for these furnishings to last and endure. And so he says, make it out of this wood. And then the dimensions of it, it, God gave even the very specific measurements of what this ark was to be. Two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. So essentially rectangular in shape. Same width and height, but a little bit longer. Two and a half cubits. We don't use cubits anymore, but uh, cubit essentially breaks down to about the, the length from your elbow to the tip of your finger. Most biblical scholars associate it around the length of about 18 inches. And so we're looking at a little bit less than four feet long and not quite two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. I don't know that there's necessarily anything significant about the numbers of the dimensions other than the fact that within this chest or within this ark were to be placed certain items of significance. And so God wanted it measured to certain dimensions. And it will represent something and and serve a purpose in the worship of Israel. And so we had acacia wood. The basic structure was made out of wood according to these dimensions. And then God said, over the top of that, you are to overlay it with pure gold. Pure gold. And so of the best, of the finest, of the purest gold that you can find, overlay it with this gold. And when we look at the the building of these furnishings and the way that the tabernacle was designed, I think one of the main lessons or, or symbolisms that we can see from the metals is that the closer that an object got to the central place of worship, in the most holy place, the more precious the metal became. So the closest to the presence of God in the most holy place was gold, and then silver out of that, and then on the very outskirts was bronze. And so the closer you got to God's presence, the more precious the metal. And so the ark was a furnishing that was most closely associated with the presence of God, and so it was to be covered in pure gold. Also, God told Moses with the construction of this ark 
that it was to have four feet on it, assuming that the feet would support the structure of the ark. These are the four feet on which it would sit. And then attached to those four feet are four rings, also made out of solid gold. And the purpose of the rings is to hold the poles that are going to be used for the carrying of it. And so feet attached to that, these gold rings, and then they're to take poles made out of acacia wood, cover them in gold, and insert the poles into the rings on the feet. And these poles were to be a permanent part of the ark, not to be removed. They were always with the ark, inserted through these rings. And these poles are to carry the ark. So the way that God designed it and, and instructed Moses is that there was one and only one way for this ark to be carried, and that was by the Levites carrying it essentially by hand with the use of these poles. And so which communicates to us the holiness of this object, right? You don't carry the object directly. You carry it by the poles that are inserted underneath this object. And we all know the story, right, of the one time that is described in the Old Testament in which they did not follow those instructions and it ended in disaster. King David was moving the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And instead of following these directions and carrying it, the Levites carrying it by the poles, they put it on a cart, carried or pulled by oxen. Well, the cart became unsteady and the Ark started to tip and to fall. And a man by the name of Uzzah put forward his hand to steady the ark. Instinctive, right? I think instinctive, probably even out of good motivation. But he put forward his hand to steady the the ark of God, and he was instantaneously killed. This is holy. Because God's presence is associated with this, this object. David was angry about what had happened, but really the blame lay with David, doesn't it? Because David was David did not properly instruct the people on how to carry the ark and transport it to Jerusalem. So he didn't follow God's instructions, and disaster came because of it. But that story and the, even the instructions here about the poles communicate to us how holy this object was in, that was to be placed in the most holy place in the temple or in the tabernacle. And so we have the the construction of it. And then a very important part of this ark, I would say the most important part of this ark, is the cover that goes on top of this ark. So, and one of the reasons why we see that this cover was the most important is because it was made out of pure gold. So the chest itself is made out of wood overlaid with gold, the cover that would go on top is not made out of a plank of wood covered with gold. It is made out of solid gold. And the two cherubim that are to be hammered and sculpted overlooking this cover, they are also of pure gold and to be said of one piece with the, the cover. So you can imagine just the, the care and the craftsmanship and the fine uh, workmanship that would be needed to construct this. It was, it was precious, precious metal, precious workmanship going into this. And this was to be the cover on top of the ark. 
And the way I read it, it, it appears to be that this cover, because of the dimensions, it was two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide. It was the same dimensions as the ark itself, which meant that it was a full cover. And the full cover could be removed, I believe, from the top, and that was the way you could insert these other objects, such as the tablets of law that would be placed in it. And then the cover would be placed on top of the ark. This cover served several purposes that are very important. And it's with this cover and what happens in association with this cover that we see the key theological lessons about the ark. And so I just want to spend a lot of time on that this evening as we think about this atonement cover and what it represents. The NIV translates it as atonement cover. Many translations have it as mercy seat. And essentially... The, the root word behind this, this cover is the Hebrew verbal idea of atonement. So kafar is the Hebrew verb. And it, it means, in the verbal form, it means to atone for or to cover, to atone. And so this was a cover that was intended to cover the ark, but it also had significance with respect to atonement. And these cherubim are sculpted above it, and these cherubim are to overshadow it with their wings outstretched, and they're to be looking down on this ark. Why the cherubim? What's their significance? Well, I think very helpfully, one of the the key significances of of the cherubim is that Israel could not make an image of God, right? So an image or a sculpture of God was prohibited by the second commandment. But these cherubim, by by forming and sculpting these cherubim, they're essentially getting the beings, the heavenly beings, that are most closely associated with the presence of God without making a visible representation of God himself. And because of the, the many different places where cherubim show up, in the different furnishings and in the tabernacle, many people believe, and it seems to be true from Exodus 25 verse 9, where God says, make this just like the pattern or the the model that I will show you. We talked about this last week, that perhaps the earthly tabernacle is essentially an earthly copy of a heavenly one. And that this tabernacle on earth is by representing these cherubim, is essentially intending to communicate, this is God's dwelling place on earth. It's like a little bit of heaven represented on earth, with God's presence here and with the cherubim, these angelic beings surrounding the presence of God, just like these angelic beings would surround the presence of God in heaven. And so this is representative of heaven and God's dwelling place but here on earth in the midst of his people. And so in addition to closing the ark, it was also a place where the blood of atonement was sprinkled. The blood of atonement was sprinkled. The interesting thing about this word in Exodus 25 that describes the mercy seat or the atonement cover This word, this particular word, is used 22 times 
in the Old Testament. Seven of them are right here in Exodus 25. Another seven of them are in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the description of the Day of Atonement. So what would happen on the Day of Atonement is the high priest, the first one being Aaron, the high priest would take a bull on this one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. He would take a bull, a spotless bull, without blemish. He would sacrifice that bull And that bull was only to atone for the sins of Aaron and his family. Aaron would then take the blood from that sacrificed bull and he would go behind the veil of the most holy place. And Leviticus 16 says that he would sprinkle seven times the blood from this bull on top of and in front of this atonement cover. Or mercy seat. Then he would come out and he would sacrifice a goat that had been chosen by Lot to be the sacrificial goat. He would sacrifice that goat and take its blood and that blood representing the sins of the people. So first he had to atone for himself to be able to represent the people. Then he sacrificed the goat which represented the rest of the people. And he did the exact same thing. He would go back into the most holy place behind the veil, take the blood from that goat, and he would sprinkle it seven times on top of and in front of this atonement cover, mercy seat. This was the place of atonement. This is the place that determined that God could continue to dwell among his people because they were a sinful people. So the the most important things that this atonement cover communicated are presence, the presence of God, a place of atonement where the blood was sprinkled to make atonement for the sins of the people. Those are the most essential elements of what this cover represented. And so uh, one of the things that I found fascinating and One of the reasons why I titled this message the way that I did is enthroned between the cherubim or the one who sits between the cherubim and do a search on that. And you'll be amazed how many times that pops up all across the Old Testament in the Pentateuch, in the law, in the books of history. In Isaiah, in the prophets, a couple of times in the Psalms. So all across the Old Testament, different places, there is this description of God. And he is described as the one who sits or who is enthroned between the cherubim. And what is that signifying? It's signifying this place. This place above the mercy seat or above the atonement cover between these two gold cherubim that had been fashioned. That is where the presence of God dwelt among his people. One commentator puts it this way. This ark was the center of gravity for the life of Israel as God's people. This was where God's presence was associated. Now, 
God is everywhere present, right? So God is omnipresent. He is everywhere in the universe. There's nowhere where you can possibly go from God's presence. But there is a special sense in which God's glory, his presence was manifested above this atonement cover, this mercy seat between the cherubim. His presence was given in a special way there so that he would be in the midst of his people. Just think about how central this place was between the cherubim. So you have this atonement cover made out of pure gold. It's the most precious part of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most precious furnishing within the tabernacle. It is within the most holy place, which is the most holy room in the tabernacle. Then you have the tabernacle itself, and then you have a courtyard surrounding the tabernacle. And where was the tabernacle? It was in the very center of the tents of the camp of Israel. This is where God was present among his people. He was the center of their whole life and worship. Their life as a nation and a community and as a worshiping people. He was in the middle of it. And so his presence among his people. And as I was thinking about the ark and about what it represents, and then thinking about how we can understand it today and and learn some lessons of theological truth and, and application for us, I thought about framing it around these three main ideas. One is the ark emphasizes the importance of the presence of God among his people. The ark emphasizes the importance of the presence of God among his people. Now, what about us today? We don't have the ark anymore, right? Despite what Indiana Jones might go looking for, as far as we know, the ark has been lost, has been destroyed. Could have been destroyed, the original ark could have been destroyed with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586 BC. If it was remade, or if they were able to retrieve the original ark when they were released to go back home under Darius, then it could have been destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. For all we know, this this article, this holy vessel within the tabernacle and was later moved into the temple, it has been destroyed and is lost. The temple has been destroyed. There has not been a temple or a tabernacle anywhere on earth since the year AD 70. So how does this apply to us today as God's people? Well, think about it this way. To Isaiah the prophet was revealed that there was one who was coming whose name would be called Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And when Jesus came into the world, John describes him in the book of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, as the eternal word who is God and has always been, this eternal word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. So in the flesh... And significantly, John says, and we beheld his glory. 
John is intentionally alluding to the glory of God that would come to rest above this place between the cherubim. This glory of God that would come. Jesus in flesh and blood is that presence of God, is that glory of God among his people. Jesus told the people, destroy this temple and in three days... I'll build it back again. They thought he was talking about the building, the physical temple, but he was talking about himself, wasn't he? Meaning his death and then resurrection on the third day. Which, what is all this teaching us? It's teaching us that Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. He is the fulfillment of all of what this is about. And it's not as if none of this is important now that Jesus has come. We wouldn't understand fully who Jesus is and what he had come to do without this. Without understanding the, the ark and the, what it meant for the, the presence of God among his people. We wouldn't understand all of that without this. But now Jesus has come and he has brought all of this to a higher level. He is literally God in the flesh. And he tabernacled among us. But what about now? Jesus has ascended to heaven, hasn't he? So do we have God with us anymore? What did Jesus tell his disciples before he left? He said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going to send you the spirit of God. You will not be alone. I will not leave you comfortless. So I'm going to send you the advocate, the spirit And when the Spirit comes, He will be with you and He will be in you. We have God with us all the time. Because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Even beyond that, even just the Holy Spirit indwelling us on an individual level, we also have Paul teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that when we gather together as the church of the living God, that we collectively become a temple in which God's spirit comes to dwell. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians three, sixteen and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Now, in that particular spot, he's not talking individually, you're God's temple. He's talking collectively, you are God's temple. You are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, which by that, I believe he means the church, not the building, but the people that are the church, then God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So when the church of God is gathered, God is with us. God is in the midst. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what this ark represents in terms of the presence of God. But before he left and and ascended to heaven, he gave us an abiding presence, didn't he? In the Holy Spirit. But that's not all, because one day we look, we're looking forward to an ultimate reality, aren't we? 
in which heaven will literally come down and a new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and God will dwell in the midst of his people forever and ever. That's the glorious day that we're looking forward to. And this ark, this original ark, this original tabernacle, it is in a continuous line of biblical theology that undergirds that whole theme of the presence of God in the midst of his people. But secondly, I think the ark shows us the necessity of atonement for a holy God to commune with sinful people. The ark shows us the necessity of atonement for the holy God to commune with sinful people. That atonement cover, that ark and the cover on top of it, that's where the atonement blood was sprinkled, right? To cover for the sins of the people so that God's presence could continue to abide in the midst of a sinful people. But we don't have a tabernacle anymore. We don't have a temple anymore. We don't have an atonement cover anymore. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. God put forth Jesus as the atonement cover. Romans 3.25. And he uses the exact same word, at least in Greek, that is used to translate here in Exodus 25. This mercy seat, this atonement cover. And Paul is saying Jesus is that. And the writer of Hebrews teaches us that we no longer need the daily or the yearly sacrifices anymore. Why? Because Jesus has come, right? Jesus has come. Hebrews ten fourteen. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One sacrifice. So where sins have been forgiven... Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary in verse 18 of Hebrews 10. We don't need any more bulls. We don't need any more goats. We don't need this actual vessel of acacia wood and gold because Jesus fulfills it. Jesus in dying on the cross and his blood being applied for our stead, he fulfills the whole purpose of this atonement cover this mercy seat. And we find redemption in him so that we, a sinful people can be forgiven and can continue to abide in the presence of God. Thirdly, and briefly, a couple of verses in this passage. I think this arc teaches us the central position of the word of God in the guidance and instruction of God's people. In verse 16 of Exodus 25, God tells Moses, after you make this ark, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. And then in verse 22, where it talks about God meeting with Moses between the cherubim, he says, above the cover between the two cherubim, that is where I will meet you and I will give you all of my commands. For the Israelites. So this ark was a place of God's presence. It was a place of atonement. And it was also the place where the word of God was treasured and stored. 
So where, and also too, then, the word of God, the law of God became a central piece in the midst of the Israelite people, right? Just as they're surrounded around God's presence, they're also around God's word that is with God in that ark. We are a people of the word. The word of God is foundational to who we are. And so we need to be in the word, living by the word, learning the word, living our lives out in accordance with the word of God. The ark teaches us how important the word of God is. And so may we as God's people, may we learn more about who God is and how important it is for him to be present among us and how God desired that for a people to be redeemed and then for him to be in their presence, for him to be their God and for them to be his people. And that is what we have as the church of the living God in this age. We have God among us, we his people and he our God. We have an everlasting atonement, a final full atonement once for all for the forgiveness of sins so that God can be in our midst. And we have an ever-living, abiding word of God by which we can base our faith and the conduct of our lives. And so may this centuries-old teaching about the Ark of the Covenant teach us about who our God is and how we can rightly relate to him. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you praise because of your wonderful wisdom and just the way in which you have planned out your work of redemption. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where you had Adam and Eve rebel against you, and, and they were excluded from the Garden of Eden, and they were kept from re-entering it by cherubim. And then, Lord, you came and mercifully entered into a covenant agreement with sinful people and provided a means of atonement for them so that you could be in their midst. And now, Lord, we have the ultimate and final atonement for our sins in your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the time when the Holy Spirit that down payment that you have given to us will one day come to full fulfillment when we are with you forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. God, right now, may we be aware of your presence when we worship you together. May we understand what great a gift that we have been given in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. May we treasure and build our lives on your holy word. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.